Welcome back to series two of Mud Between Your Toes. In this series, I'm going to let my guests do all the talking. People with a great and often inspirational story to tell, or maybe just something funny. So sit back and enjoy Conversations with Pete Wood. Hello and welcome back. Were it not for Lisa Highwood, who founded the Tiki Highwood Foundation in 1994, the plight of the pangolin would look bleak. They are commonly referred to as the most trafficked mammal in the world. Their scales are used as an ingredient in traditional Chinese medicine. Sadly, this demand is driving transnational smuggling of their scales to unprecedented heights. During the last five years, an estimated 140 tons of pangolin scales have been confiscated, and the rate at which they are being seized is growing significantly. Hong Kong and China continue to be persistent hotspots for seizures of pangolin scales. However, during the last three years, Vietnam and Nigeria have moved into third and fourth slots. The Tiki Highwood Foundation is a wildlife-based NGO in memory of Lisa's father, the late Tiki Highwood. Lisa realized that there's a niche that is often overlooked in wildlife conservation, the preservation of species that lack the charisma and appeal of the larger, more publicized, rare animals. Lisa is here today to talk to me about the foundation, the pangolins, and a few other critters. So Lisa Highwood, Welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Good morning, Pete. How are you doing? Thank you for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Tell me about your father and what inspired you to start the foundation. Pete, my dad was, um, you know, I think there's always a, a very big connection between fathers and daughters. And um, my relationship with my dad was, uh, was one of these such relationships. And so growing up, I had a very close understanding of um, the person that my dad was and obviously I admired him greatly um, but equally he he was my biggest teacher of life and what life was about um, and so on his passing we as a family wanted to do something in his memory and we weren't 100% sure what that would look like we didn't know whether it would be a bursary or something in his in, in his name um, because my dad was a businessman he wasn't actually involved in conservation uh, per se. He did get involved, um, but it wasn't, uh, you know, his core focus. Um, and so when uh, my dad died in 1992, uh, Zimbabwe was undertaking probably the worst drought or, or had been affected by the worst drought ever in history. And so um, the, the brainchild of the first elephant translocation from Klemkutsi was underway. And uh, I trottled off went down to the low felt and said, right, I'm here to help, wanting to do something with funds that had been raised in lieu of flowers at my dad's funeral. And um, three months later, I returned to Harare after being in the bush with a whole bunch of amazing individuals. Clem could see one of those such individuals. And we had partaken in moving 689 elephants from one of Zimbabwe's largest national parks, Ghana Resort, to um, smaller conservancies because the elephants were dying um, due to lack of uh, food and water in one such park. So that, that for me, I suppose, was what launched the seed of like-minded people coming together and having a common goal and being able to get in a room, 
um, bash out some differences, understand you know, the challenges, and then put a program together and just go out and do it. And in 1994, or early 1994, Ken Quincy came to me and said, right, Lisa, um, you, you, know, you were involved in the first translocation of elephants. What about the bull elephants? Because in the first translocation, it was only matriarchal herds. So there were no bull elephants that were moved. Obviously, the size of the bulls were, was something to take into consideration. And because of the size, the drug dosages had not been perfected. So it took Clem, you know, the, the whole 92-93 translocation to work on perfecting the drug dosages and the containers, et cetera, to handle bull elephants. And the Tiki Highwood Foundation was actually launched um, off the back of moving the first ever bull elephants um, from, a from a commercial farming area into a campfire area. I think not very many people knew that we were involved in, in such a translocation. So that's what started the Tiki Highwood Foundation, um, Pete. And then from that experience, what I saw was that there are a lot more animals that are in grave danger of becoming extinct. Um, in Zimbabwe, we have an abundance, an overabundance of elephants. So in Zimbabwe, elephants are not even threatened. Um, globally, yes, they are, but within our country, they are not. So I wanted the focus of the Tiki Highwood Foundation to be on, as you mentioned earlier, the less charismatic, but the equally important and necessary species, such as Lichtenstein hartebeest, which is Zimbabwe's rarest animal, um, the pangolin, the hedgehog, all these small little animals that are very much part of the ecosystem um, and, and species that we believe should, should not and never be overlooked. I mean, you, you, so you went from the largest mammal in the world down to one of the smallest mammals in the world, the little pangolin. Um, the, and the foundation, as you said, is based in Zimbabwe. But what other countries do you operate in? Well, Peter, good question. Um, we have a, a center in Cameroon, which um, was launched last year. Um, so, so we actually have a presence in Cameroon. We work with um, a very good foundation in Liberia and uh, in Uganda. Um, and then, like right now, we're working with Malawi um, on three pangolins. One is a young pangolin that, uh, that all three have actually been brought into the sanctuary um, because of confiscated due to trade. Um, so we, we're here to advise anybody that comes across a pangolin, regardless of what country they are in within Africa. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people believe that we started the foundation and wanted to do pangolin. Well, we didn't. I chose the pangolin as the logo because in Zimbabwe, the pangolin is a species that is highly revered. And in 1975, long before many people even knew what a pangolin was, the Zimbabwean government placed the pangolin on the specially protected species list in country. And so the pangolin is highly revered within our country, within Zimbabwe. And because I revered and honored my father, um, I chose the pangolin as my logo because it was my respect that I was giving to my father and chose the pangolin. Um, and so I didn't really set out to save pangolin, if the truth be known. Um, but then in October of 1994, the authorities phoned me and said, we have an animal that um, was being poached and we need you to go and get it. So I drove some three um, hours away from Harare and arrived on the side of the road to a group of people with a sack. 
And when I opened the sack, there looking up at me was one slightly blued eye. And uh, it was a pangolin. It was the very first pangolin that I'd seen. And I froze because I actually did not know what to do. Um, there was nothing that prepared me for that first moment when I saw a pangolin, when I was in the presence of a pangolin. And that's where our journey as a Te Power Foundation started, was in October 1994. I mean, you've, it's interesting what you've already said about the pangolin, pangolin being very respected in Zimbabwe. Do you think that has helped it in any way, or has it actually made it more desirable as a, a, a trafficable, if that's the right word, animal? Uh, good question, Pete. I think in Zimbabwe, it's actually been, it's been a useful thing because there has been a form of respect from, from an inherent age in, in the rural people within Zimbabwe. And it was believed that only a chief could receive a pangolin, you know, so that the average person was not allowed to, to pick up that pangolin and take it home, so to speak. If a, a person in the community came across a pangolin, they had to go and present it to the chief. And it was only the chief who could decide what to do with that pangolin. And even now, one of our programs within Zimbabwe is working with the chiefs. And we have lots of amazing chiefs. There's one particular chief, Chief Musha, who's in the Chimani Mani region of Zimbabwe. And any pangolin that his people bring him, he immediately contacts, contacts us and the authorities. And we do the handover and the, the pangolin is given back to the authorities. And in turn, on, on behalf of the authorities, we rehabilitate that pangolin and return it back into the wild. So um, I, think, I think it's been a positive thing in Zimbabwe. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether this is true, but I recall Robert Mugabe, his totem was the pangolin and people began sending him pangolins as gifts. And this actually led to him banning the hunting of the animal. Um, I think government house at the time was being overrun by these little scaly anteaters. Look, that, that is um, it's not quite how it happened. What basically happened was is when um, uh, we had a change of power and um, Robert Mugabe came in as president, the people of Zimbabwe were doing their honorable um, culture, which was to present their chief with a pangolin. Right, okay. So the people in the communities were honoring their new president and bringing pangolins into the city center to honor the president. And, and obviously, um, the, the state house and the government of the day did not want these pangolins to be brought in. And, and under Robert Mugabe, uh, uh, there were many, many um, notices sent out to the, the populace saying, look, these pangolins need to remain in the bush. Please do not bring them um, to, to state house. We, we really you know, we mm. want them to remain in the bush where they belong. So that's, I think that's a little bit more true to the story. Um, and yes, a lot of pangolins were brought in and as many as could have been returned to the wild, I believe were. Um, but that was a little bit before my time in 1980. I had lunch today with somebody who didn't know what a pangolin is. So let's be clear that a pangolin is a mammal. It suckles its young um, and yet it has scales on it. So it looks like a, a reptile. Um, and it's poached because of the keratin in, in the scales. Is there actually any medicinal value to it? And can keratin be manufactured artificially? 
fish. Um, okay, let me try and break <laughs> that one question down and, and, and just jump in if I've missed anything. Yeah. Okay, so firstly, um, pangolins are consumed for multiple purposes. In Asia, the pangolin is used, both the scales are used for medicinal purposes, as well as um, the meat consumed by the people. Um, in Africa, in, you've got, it, we break Africa up as a continent. Western Central Africa, there is still a large base of um, uh, indigenous people that eat pangolin um, as part of the bushmeat, and pangolins are traded in the bushmeat. And then uh, throughout Africa, there is a medicinal relevance to pangolin. Um, like in Zimbabwe, you know, our Samgomas or our witch doctors will occasionally have a scale or, or some part of the pangolin as part of their um, toolbox, for a better, better word, or medicine box. Um, so, so that breaks it down. There is, in all countries, there is no scientific proof that anything from a pangolin actually will help said person, um, regardless of what they're being treated for. So we need to put that out. What I'd also like to add to that is that for every um, mammalian cure, there is a botanical cure. So I'm not sure if I've made myself very yeah. clear. So yeah. for instance, let's say we wanted to take um, some pangolin scale for arthritis. There is an equal replacement in the botanical world, i.e. I could have a bark of a something that will do exactly the same thing. So my point being is we, as humankind, we do not actually need to kill animals for medicine because mm. there is a botanical um, replacement for any cure in, in the animal world. Lisa, I'll go, I'll go into the ins and outs of the foundation in a minute, but uh, what other animals do you protect? Pete, we actually have a 24-7 rescue center in Zimbabwe. And so any wild animal that is um, uh, orphaned or injured or um, needs assistance, we will support. So we, in our past, we've done uh, cheetah, leopard, otter, pangolin, genet. I mean, the list is fairly long. Um, we're probably the longest standing organization in Zimbabwe. We are a um, uh, equivalent of an NGO in Zimbabwe. We, in Zimbabwe, it's called a PVO. Um, and we've been operating since 1994 and will take on any injured or orphaned wild animal. I mean, I was surprised to see the hyena on your list. Uh, you have a picture of a hyena on your website, but people tend to forget that foundations aren't all about the cute little animals. They involve they involve the ugly animals, but they also involve tons of research. I expect a large proportion of your time is taken up with welfare, policy and legislation for wildlife, engaging with the appropriate authorities. I can imagine this is pretty tedious stuff, but absolutely necessary. A hundred percent. And and Pete, just for the record from my side, I don't believe that there is such a thing as an ugly animal. Every <laughs> animal is unique. And every animal is perfect in its own uh, design. Um, and, you know, I think as mankind, we need to be very aware of that, that these animals have, you know, th their specialized uh, needs or um, dietary requirements, such as the pangolin who only eats ants and termites. But, but nature is beyond anything that we could actually uh, imagine in the human race um, because it is so perfect. 
Um, and, and these animals, whether we, we think they're cute and cuddly or, I hate the word ugly, but um, um, look slightly different, um, they all have a purpose in nature and they all fit together like a piece, pieces of a puzzle. Um, so one of the reasons why we ventured into policy and legislation is because I really realized early on about this trafficking of, of wildlife. Um, and a lot of it is in the exotic pet world. It's for medicinal purposes. Um, it, it, it's, it's driven by man's greed. And what concerned me is that we don't have a lot of time. You know, a lot of conservation bodies or people, they say, we're doing this for the next generation. Well, I don't think we actually have the next generation to worry about. We have today, now, and our own generation to worry yeah. about. And that's what we need to be focused on. So for me, um, I wanted to affect change. And the one way where, we, where I do believe we can affect change is through the law. And that is why the Tikihawe Foundation has spent a large portion of its um, energy in working with the authorities to improve or, or change, adapt, or re even introduce uh, policies that will protect these animals. Yeah, uh, also the rehabilitation, of course, of the animals must play a major role. Um, the pangolin eats ants. But how do you feed a pangolin pup? Uh, does it drink cow's milk? And where do you get the colostrum from, because that's the building block of a, a young mammal's life. Well, obviously, after 27 years, we've had to um, try a lot of things that some things have worked and some things haven't. But over the years, we've managed to perfect um, different dietary requirements, be it for um, a neonate, be it for um, a, a young juvenile, or be it for an adult pangolin. Um, that's all part of working and, and developing um, dietary um, requirements for multiple species. So that's just part of our repertoire, hey Pete. Over the last 27 years, we have, through trial and error, managed to find out what does work best for pangolins. And I'm sure over the next couple of decades, we, that will only be perfected and changed because I don't think with an animal that is so specialized like the pangolin, I don't think you can ever say, I've got the perfect diet. I think it's something that has to evolve over time. And obviously from our side as, as a foundation, there is nothing better than uh, the wild ants and termites that that animal would actually eat. Mm. So we focus on as much as possible on the natural foraging of a pangolin, both for its dietary requirements and also for its psychological um, embitterment. Is, uh, Lisa, is the foundation involved in education, um, making people aware of these issues, not just with the pangolin, but all the other animals as well? Yes, over the years, we, we most certainly have been. Um, in fact, it was two years ago, we launched the first ever illegal wildlife trafficking awareness campaign in Zimbabwe. Um, you know, a lot of people know about anti-poaching, um, but not very many people understand the difference between anti-poaching and anti-trafficking. So there is, there is certainly a focus on creating awareness. Um, we have done awareness campaigns in Uganda, Liberia, and um, in Cameroon. And obviously, that's something that we need to do a lot more of. I don't think you can, one can ever stop doing enough awareness. Um, within Zimbabwe, we also do a lot of training with the, the government officials, with um, your public prosecutors, your magistrates, uh, parks personnel, and police in trying to 
get the authorities who are the enforcers of the land to understand why there is such a plight against species such as pangolin, rhino and ivory or elephant and um, what, what we as a country can, can do to improve that. Uh, going back to the legislation, um, the enforcement of legislation must be paramount. Are governments listening? Hong Kong, China, Vietnam, these places are far away from Africa. There's a famous Chinese proverb, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away. This traditional Chinese saying alludes to local officials' tendency to disregard the wishes of central authorities in distant Beijing. But of course, in modern terms, it begs the question, who is listening? Um, I, I, I think, to be honest, I think there are a lot of people on the ground, a lot of good uh, NGOs and, and groups based globally that are now trying to get governments to listen, because obviously we need the buy-in from governments in order to have any traction on the ground. So um, it, it is, it's a slow process, Pete, if I can put it that way. It's not something that's going to happen overnight. Um, we work and have had a long-standing relationship with the authorities in Zimbabwe, and our partners in other countries have also got long-standing relationships with governments in different countries. So it's a process. I think that that's the only way I can describe it. It's a process. And yes, there are people that are talking to the relevant authorities in the different countries. Does, need, does there need to be a louder voice? Of course there does. Um, the, the, the voice needs to be as loud as it can until this can stop. Um, when that's going to be, none of us can see, none of us have a glass ball, sadly, and we don't know when that is likely to be. Absolutely. Uh, despite China actually banning the sale of pangolin scales, it seems to have made little difference. A new report has found that medicines containing pangolin scales are still being produced and sold throughout China and even sold openly on eBay. That in itself is rather soul-destroying. Look, it is. It, it's really, it's very, very difficult. Um, and yeah, a lot of people talk about the word hope. Yeesh, I tell you, it's hard to try and find that word and what it means sometimes when every time you feel you, you've won a little victory and then you open um, a, an article and there's something that you just didn't expect, you know? Um, yeah. It's hard going, Pete. It is yeah. hard going. I mean, you work with um, a lot of major organizations. One of them is called... African Parks, which manage the world's largest counter-poaching force operating in something like 10 countries. What exactly is the role of African Parks? Um, well, African Parks Network, I think, is a phenomenal organization because uh, for two reasons. One, they are working within the different countries in preserving national parks. So these are parks that... Um, have for one reason or another have not uh, been maintained or you know, the, the volume of capital that is required to get them back to their former glory is just not within the capacity of the current government. And so African Parks comes into these countries and works with the government because the, the parks belong to the country, which is what is vitally important to understand. Um, and they preserve space. And the preservation and rehabilitation of land and space is key to any work that the Tiki Howard Foundation does. You know, there's no point in us rescuing and, and saving over two or 300 pangolins or whatever the species might be 
if we don't have a wild space to put them back into, we as a foundation believe that all animals wherever possible need to be returned to their, their wild natural land and not be viewed or seen in captivity. Um, so African Parks is an organization that has been working throughout Africa and is developing these sanctuaries within the different countries. Um, and some of the countries are in civil war and there's a lot, there are a lot of um, hurdles uh, in order to achieve this, but it allows land to be protected and it allows um, organizations like ourselves to be able to um, rescue, rehabilitate animals and put them back into safe spaces that are protected under African parks. And give you an enormous amount of clout, I should imagine. Uh, do you operate with any NGOs in Asia? Because uh, obviously I'm speaking to you from Hong Kong and I'm very aware of the plight of the pangolin amongst other animals in Asia. Um, are there any companies that you work with here? Yes, there are. There are a lot of um, Asian counterparts who are doing amazing work. Um, you've got Save Vietnam's Wildlife, which is um, an organization that's been operating and saving and uh, rescuing and releasing pangolin in Vietnam. Um, you've got ENV, who um, you more than likely have heard of. They're an amazing um, uh, organization and group. So there, are, there definitely is a lot. Even Animal Asia, who I know they focus on bear predominantly, but the work that they do with welfare of of domestic animals and wild animals and the work that they're doing with governments both in China and in Vietnam is unbelievably positive. And uh, Joel Robertson is a, is a force to be reckoned with and an amazing individual um, who has a team under her of just superb individuals that are passionate, uh, determined and driven to make sure that these animals such as the bears have a better life ahead of them after being um, forced into I don't even want to yeah. find the word. Yeah, they get stuck in these there. tiny little cages and have yeah. tubes put into their bile. Uh, yeah, it's, it's not it's, great. Yeah, beyond. It's beyond. So how can we help as individuals? Do you, um, does the foundation rely on donations? Yes, obviously, uh, you know, funding is always an important thing. But one of the things I would like to just bring up on this platform, if I may, Pete, is yeah. that each one of us are responsible. And, you know, a lot of people will say to us, okay, how can we help you, Lisa? Well, I think that conservation, it starts with us. It starts with the I. We need, as, as a human race, we need to start making an impact. And it's all very well and easier sometimes to say, okay, well, I'll support that person over there who's saving that, be it a humanitarian organization or be it a conservation organization. Bring it home. What can I do in my space to help this globe become a better globe. Um, that is what I think, particularly in the, in, in the space that we are now, in a pandemic, this is where we need to start looking at. We need to start looking at the self. We need to start looking at overpopulation. And only individual people can make that change. You know, people will say to me, what is your biggest nightmare? My biggest nightmare is people. It's overpopulation. The more people we have, the less space we have. The more people we have, the more pollution we have. The more people we have, the more these archaic cultural um, TCM uh, reasons for killing animals will, be, you know, will have a demand. So all these things are about individuals. And we as individuals need to look at ourselves and say, what can I do within my space, wherever I am, be, I, be it in Zimbabwe or be it like you in Hong Kong? 
what can we do to make this globe a better place for all of us? Lisa, I think you have just answered my last question, which is, is there any light at the end of this tunnel? <laughs> um, if we as a human race get our acts together and start being more um, uh, proactive in what we do as individual people and stop turning a blind eye to pandemics, stop turning a blind eye to uh, the bushmeat trade, stop turning a blind eye to overpopulation, then potentially there might be hope. But it's up to us. The responsibility is up to us. And we can't talk about the next generation. We need to start talking about our generation. Um, so I'm not sure if that's a very positive way to end on this conversation, Pete, but I do feel very strongly about it. Um, yeah, I, no I think it's very positive. About. Oh, good. Okay. Let's not talk about the next generation. Let's try and talk about our own generation and let's solve our problems that partially we created and equally there are solutions. So let's find the solutions together and let's overcome them. So if anyone is interested to find out more about the Tiki Highwood Foundation and the work that they do, um, you can go to their website, uh, tikihighwoodfoundation.org. That's T-I-K-K-I-H-Y-W-O-O-D foundation.org. Um, that's about it. We're out of time. Lisa Highwood. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating hearing about the extraordinary work that you do. Please keep it up. And thank you so much for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Pete, you're a star. Thank you so much for what you do and for bringing these plights into the every, everybody's homes. And uh, yeah, keep up doing what you're doing. We, it's a team effort. We all need to do what we can. Thank you so much. See you soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that's all for now, but if you enjoyed listening to that podcast, you might also find my book, Mud Between Your Toes, faintly amusing. You can buy the book on Amazon. You can find both series one and two of my podcasts on a plethora of platforms, from direct links on my Mud Between Your Toes Facebook page to apps such as Podbean, Apple Music, iTunes Store, Spotify Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, CastBox, TuneIn Radio, and Google Podcasts. So don't miss out on my next episode. Goodbye.